Hi, Chris. How are you? So? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Not too bad. It's, uh, the weather's coping in South Wales. Mm, I can't tell what's going on here. It's either raining or about to rain. That's pretty generic British weather, I think. Anyway, here we are. Uh, episode 18 we've got to for the 22nd of May 2022. I think if we time this about right, will our 20th episode be WWDC? I think it might be. And if we're a little before or after, we'll wait and it will be WWDC. For those who don't know, WWDC is Apple's worldwide developer conference. It's when they announce all the new stuff that are coming in the new operating systems for about the next 12 months, which will get released to the general public in September. But a lot of people might install the beers beforehand, including myself. Very glad you I've passed on my role of explainer-in-chief to you for one thing. So that's really good. And yeah, I'm going to resist the temptation to install the beta on my laptop this time. Otherwise, we'll mess up the... I've got my dual iPad lifestyle. So I'll keep one iPad, which I just use for calls, as is. And then everything else is fair game, in my view. We shall see. If it messes up your office install again this year, you might not be enjoying that quite so much. As long as Teams works on this one iPad, I'm good. Did Outlook not fail continuously in the last beta? In one of them, yes. And it was bad. It was very bad. Rich is a man who lives in Outlook. So um, like, like, I don't know. I've got faith and we've now got webmail at work. So um, I'm living the dream. So I've got options and I've got multiple iPads. So I think I'll be all right. So if Safari is completely knackered again and Outlook is completely knackered, then you're screwed. But I'm only going to put on one iPad, not... Fair That's what enough. I'm saying now. Fair enough. That's what you're saying now. Until there's the one feature you got to have on both of them, we'll see. I'm going to try and re- try and resist the urge. Fair enough. Shall we dive in? Let's dive in uh, straight into follow up, which we've only got one item this week, and I think it's yeah. Sorry, back to car talk just very briefly. So one thing I did want to try out was sharing sharing my BMW key on my phone with my wife. I thought she should have that because if we're ever in town and she goes back to the car and I'm not with her, she can open my car and drive it if she wants. So quite neat. You can, in the car key in the wallet app, you just click on the dots and go share the key and I invite my wife into it. Sends her a message and then on the message you tap and accept and it, it does take a while. I don't know what it does, but it does stuff and then installs the key and she can unlock my car and drive my car. You can sell it so that if you want, they can just open your car and get in your car and not drive it. So say if you did it for your children, for example, which could be an option. My children don't have phones, so I haven't tried that. But the one thing I found odd with it is I sent it to her. I was on 15.5, she's on 15.4, and it just didn't work. I thought, that's a bit rubbish. So I updated her to 15.5, and then it worked. So that, that was it, really. But um, it's quite a nice feature, I think. Like I say, if you're out and about, She's got the key to the car. She doesn't need to take anything with her. I thought it was quite cool. And she can drive my car. That's not a bad feature, really. I mean, I think I said before, the Tesla one is you must be in the car and you must have one of the original keys to the car, which are little NFC credit cards, which need to live in a particular spot. And then you can authenticate another phone as a car key when you're in the car. And it's just within the app. I need both keys to do my phone. Once you've done the master phone, you're good. The only thing I'm slightly nervous on now, now I'm so reliant on my phone for literally everything. When I come to change, imagine if you go, go and you drive to a shop and you go into Apple and you, you swap out your phone and you part exchange it and you come out and then you can't get in your car. And I just don't know how any of that works. So I think when it comes to migration, when I get a new handset, which may or may not be this year, this can be interesting just to see how does that all cope. Yeah, because to my understanding is they all authenticate against the Bluetooth MAC address or the NFC chip MAC address. I've no idea. So um, it, it will be when we get to September and I potentially get a new phone, I'll let you know. Yeah, maybe don't delete the, the old one straight away, I'd say. Yeah, we'll make sure you've got it on you, especially if you've driven somewhere. <laughs> Actually, now you're talking about it, there's another reason to maybe not upgrade your phone to the beta this year. Who knows what havoc it will wreak on your, on your car keys. 
I've driven to work and I can't get back in my car because the beat has had a, had a fit. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it was fine in developer beta 1 and then I put developer beta 2 on and it's hosed. You know, that's that could be a nightmare. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware. So well, you can t- you can say I told you shit so at some point, I'm sure. I, I think I'll let it you'll, you take that one for the team this year. I might play it a little safer uh, for once. Okay, well, we'll see. But it does show how more and more reliant we are on our phones. <laughs> so uh, this isn't follow-up, but it's just a little bit of thing. Uh, listener Ashley has asked a couple of questions this week, one of which we're going to deal with in the main part of the show because I think it's quite an interesting topic. And then the second one uh, we'll deal with next week. So sorry, listener Ashley, that uh, we're not dealing with all your questions straight away, but uh, we will deal with one today and we'll give us something to talk about you know, in a bit more detail next week. Because to- just to give a tease, thinking about Thunderbolt hubs, particularly now we're all being pushed into a more laptop lifestyle because you can't get a Mac Studio or whatever. It's quite an important topic, I think, to think about what we use, how we connect up. Is it to the screen as you do with your studio display and your iPads or is it in some other way? Okay, and I've got a bit of experience with this, actually. Um, not Thunderbolt per se, but more the USB-C hubs we've, we've used at work, so I can shine a bit light on that too. Okay, that, that's next week. That's next week. But this okay. week, we can dive straight into rumours and news, I think. Okay, what are we doing first? I think we're doing uh, the Apple, the, the potential Apple headset, which may or may not appear at WDC. There's a rumour that it's been demoed to the Apple board of directors. When I uh, put this in the show notes, I thought, does this go into rumour or news? And I was trying to work out, is it a rumour that it's been demoed or is it news that it has been demoed? But I thought, because it's not being reported by Apple, it comes under rumour. So I think, interesting, there's been so much smoke around this particular fire, but it's obviously never come to anything. Apple have been chipping away at AR in our phones and in our iPads. Do you think, what, what do you think on this? Do you think it's this is happening and we're going to get a demo dub dub? I don't think we'll get a demo this dub dub. I think we'll get it next year. I think it's still a little bit soon. I mean, and let's be clear here. When we're talking about augmented reality, that is goggles you can see through onto which bits of the real world are painted. So the, the examples that are often given is you'd look around a cityscape and over the cityscape would be a little arrows pointing at your Airbnb or what houses were for sale or, or something like that. The thing we all want is who is this person I'm looking at and what is their wife or husband's name so I know I am talking to who I think and I don't muck it up. VR is a closed off experience where it's an entirely constructed world that you're looking at through the goggles, virtual reality. And there's a few companies do VR goggles. Steam are quite well known for doing it for games and things like that and of course oculus uh, which is now part of the meta brand make a number of vr goggles for playing games on and they're increasingly heading towards wireless ones where with dedicated games they haven't done much more with with that i think there is some sort of windows extended desktop you can run on one of them so you can sort of look around and have a massive windows desktop in front of your vision when you when you use it i don't know how that works with a webcam do you have avatars pop in or do you all just sit there with goggles on looking at each other so i'm a bit ignorant about that but i think it's reasonably mature now the vr space but the ar space certainly isn't microsoft have had a go with some goggle some glasses of theirs we know google glass was a thing back in the day and that's apparently coming back in some way shape or manner or form but there are issues, as far as I can see, with, with running any sort of augmented equipment in the world. Is the world ready to accept them, particularly in the mainstream? Well, I was going to say something similar. Is the world ready for this? Like Google were, were ahead of the curve with Google Glass. There's some good and some bad with it. I was kind of interested to see where it ended up, but I was disappointed they canned it. I kind of wished they kept going with it. Um, and maybe they have been in the background and they're starting to reveal that now. I'm a bit mixed whether we're going to see this in a couple of weeks. I wonder if this is the one more thing if they've shown it to the board I, I wonder how privy the board get to products before they come out because apple famously run a very secretive world so if the board have been showing it does that mean it, it 
it's ready at WWDC. I mean, there's a couple of things. I should, I'll read a paragraph from the rumor just so we, we, we can understand what we're talking about. So it's, it will feature two 4K micro OLED displays, 15 camera modules, powerful processors equivalent to M-series chips in the laptops and iPads, eye-tracking capabilities, hand gesture support, spatial audio, and other features. When it launches, the headset is expected to cost somewhere around $3,000. Now, that, that is a lot of money for an unproven device. It's substantially more than the iPad we were sort of romanticizing last week when we were talking about its passing as a launch product for something that has no clear unique selling point as far as I'm concerned. So I think that is a really hard sell if you're going to say it's going to be available in a couple of weeks' time, or at least it's, it will be announced in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you. I think it is a lot. And actually thinking back to like the Apple Watch, when they released that, they didn't really get where they were pitching it right. So any new market they enter, I think there's a bigger barrier to entry now because you expect a new device to have a fully-fledged app store. You expect it to integrate with Apple's ecosystem and the ecosystem has just got bigger and bigger and bigger because I'm guessing if you've got the glasses on or goggles, it's going to you know have some interaction with your watch maybe and it's probably going to link to your phone. And so there's a lot more of things they've got to do with it just to get version 1.0 out the door. Whereas you take 50 years ago when they released the iPhone, they didn't have to integrate it with anything really. They just had to sync some data to it. Whereas now you've got a, the, the base level for a new product is so much higher, I think. And like I said, it'll be interesting to see how they're going to pitch it. And are they going to pitch this at just 3D um, artists or whatever it's going to be, or people in architecture, <coughs> or are they actually going to do something else with it where they are trying to aim for the more mainstream? I don't know. I'm really curious to see where it goes. Are they going to learn from the Apple Watch where they released that a year too early? Do they wait a year and, and do it? I, I don't know. It's tricky. Yeah, I mean, there's something in there in the maturity of a product when you launch it. And let's face it, the iPhone wasn't fully fledged when it appeared. The the three things that Steve said it was going to be, you know, a, a revolutionary communicator, an internet device, and whatever the third thing was, oh, and a telephone. You know, it, it became so much more than that very, very quickly. And the App Store helped with that. But I think we all saw the potential of what the iPhone could be on day one. The iPad present company accepted, was a slightly harder sell, but everybody just wanted a bigger iPhone at that point. They wanted more screen real estate, and we hoped, and still hope, that more would come and make it a more useful device. But there's a big difference between a device at five, six thousand, thousand pounds, thousand dollars, that an Apple fan's willing to take a punt on, that they can see the value of it. I mean, we've had AR stuff on our iPads and our iPhones for five, six years now, as far as I'm aware. There's been multiple demos with them showing games at WWDC. We've had IKEA things to put furniture in place. And for me, there's still no compelling reason to have it. To, you know, And I have tried Google Glass. So other than that sort of very specific use case when I tried that, I don't see it. I don't see it, but I want somebody to show me it. You know, is it something... You know, when I, I walk a lot, is it something I go for a walk and yeah, I could have a map on it. I could see the distance I've gone and you don't even look at your watch. Does it replace your watch? I guess not because you wouldn't have it on all the time. Would it be an interface for playing music, sending text messages? I don't know. And if it's going to be operated just by Siri, they've got a bigger, bigger challenge ahead of them, I think, because that just has not iterated enough. I mean, they're saying something about hand controls. So you can wave your hands around in front of your face, I guess, and it should get picked up on some of these cameras. But the render, which, and the render will bear no you know, reality compared to what will actually be released if and when it's released, looks like ski goggles with Apple watch straps, you know, as far as I can see. So you might look quite cool coming down a slope wearing that, but you're not going to, you know, walk down the street or go for your jog wearing these things that, that I just, I don't know, I don't see it. 
Yeah, I, I'm kind of with you, but maybe maybe we need to see it. Maybe it's got to mature over a few years. I don't know. It's, watch this space, I guess. Yeah, as Apple fans, I think, you know, we're always there waiting to, oh, that's the thing that was been missing from my life and now I've got to spend far too much money and get it. And they're really good at doing that. So I'm, I am interested to see the story very much. How's your Apple Watch? Good. I could still do being a, taking the odd day, but we've talked about that before. Yeah, moving on. Moving on. So the other one uh, in the rumor bank is this mysterious device. This is a story from May 21st, the link's in the show notes. And the Federal Communication Authority in America, the FCC, has a filing, so anything that's got a radio in it has to go through the FCC for approval because it's got a radio in it. So therefore, these things tend to leak a little bit earlier. Many of them don't come to light, but this seems to be quite an interesting one. And filings reveal Apple's mysterious network adapter that runs iOS. So I thought this was interesting. What was your first thought on mysterious network adapter? So when I first saw this, I thought, oh, maybe they are starting to move USB-C and provide some different dongles for your Mac, because obviously the new MacBook Pros are still all USB-C, there's no Ethernet. So I kind of thought, is it is it that? And then I thought, well, it's got two, two network ports on it. That, that sounds a bit odd. And then I read somewhere else, and I can't remember where it was, that actually it's possibly just an internal product, but they have to still get it um, verified. And I thought, okay, maybe, maybe that is it. I'm not surprised it runs like iOS inside it, though, because... We saw a long time ago with, I think it was like a HDMI adapter, and that ran like a little mini OS inside it, and you'd lighten it into your iPad, and then you could plug HDMI into your iPad. And that ran some, I don't think it was full on iOS, but it ran a, a operating system of some, some kind. And the reason that came to light is because Panic, the software development company at the time, who are probably more latterly known for doing the Playdate gaming device, at the time they wrote a piece of software and I can't think what it's called, but like a dashboard piece of software. So you could take an iPad, plug it into your TV and have a bunch of widgets on your TV. And they did a lot of work looking into how these adapters work. So I'm not surprised it's got a OS on it. It would make sense it's got iOS on it because obviously that's what's on your Apple display. So I wasn't that surprised to see it. I just thought it might just be a dongle attachment. I mean, you know what? If they sold this when I bought my studio display, I would have probably bought this adapt, network adapter rather than buying Belkin's equivalent. Yeah, I mean, this gets into our listeners' question for next week a little bit. The two things I thought about, and again, I'll read out the text that that comes along with the rumour. The mysterious network adapter has two gigabit Ethernet ports, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and NFC antennas, plus a USB-C port. The FCC filings also show the accessory features 32 gigabytes of internal storage, 1.5 gigabytes of RAM, and a second version of the same product has a lightning port instead of USB-C only, and one gigabyte of RAM. So that says one of two things to me. That is, it's a dongle. You know, with two Ethernet adapters and maybe the HDMI doesn't show on it or something like that. Or the second thing is, are they bringing back airport and doing their own wireless network working equipment again? And and then giving you the facility to plug in external storage and do time machine backups and stuff. Is this the dongle that turns your studio display into an Apple TV? Because it's got all the networking stuff on it. I have no idea. It's a bit of an odd one. I think, given what it's got in it, because why would you want any wireless services on a lightning you know equipped device because all the lightning devices have got all of these things already in them they've already they all you know the first iphone well that didn't even have lightning on it shipped with bluetooth shipped with bluetooth and had wi-fi so i don't know it's not i find it very bizarre i think you think that your thoughts about it maybe being an internal device for testing in some way shape manner or form might be on the nose after like i said i read it first one was like, i can't see what this would be useful for could be wrong happy to be wrong and then when it moved along to oh it could be internal so I don't think it's that interesting, but like I say, if they did make a, a quality USB-C network adapter, I would have probably bought it. So 
I don't know. Maybe watch this space. I think it's um, under NDA until September time. So maybe something will come out. I don't know. The irony about them releasing a quality, you know, USB-C slash Thunderbolt adapter when they've actually brought ports back to the MacBook Pro line is is not lost on me. The one thing I do wish the studio display had was an Ethernet port built in the back of it because that would tidy up for me. But I've just used an adapter and it's been great, predominantly with iOS, and it just works. And if you plug them a MacBook into it, it just picks it up as Ethernet as well. So, Yeah, I'd like to know what sort of speed it runs at, though. I mean, a couple of other podcasts have been reporting that if you, if you plug a gigabit Ethernet adapter into it, you're only getting like half a gig of speed. You don't get a full gig. So I'd be quite curious to know what the throughput is. I've no idea. All I really wanted it for was just not so much the performance, because I'm only using it for the internet, but just more for the stability. So I don't have any Wi-Fi dropouts or anything. If you plug an iPad in with Ethernet, does it affect your, you know, AirPlay or, or AirDrop or any of those devices like that? Because if, when I plug my Mac in with Ethernet, I lose Sidecar and I lose all that ability because the networking side goes there. I haven't noticed anything, but I don't AirPlay a huge amount because the Wi-Fi is so quick and the internet here. If I take, you know, a screenshot on one iPad and one on the other one, it, by the time I usually go and look, it's there kind of thing. So I don't know. I've not not had any issues and continuity seems to work fine. So. It seems to work. What is weird though is when you Ethernet on an iOS device or an iPadOS device, it um, takes off the Wi-Fi icon and shows you four or five G, and you're like, "Why am I on Sailor? Are you not on Sailor? You're connected via Ethernet, but there's nothing in the status bar to demonstrate that." Hmm. Interesting. Okay, that was a bit of a diversion. So that's it for rumors this week. Certainly, the more interesting rumors anyway, and we can dive into news. And I think the first item's for you, Chris. Oh, yeah, so I was just touching on, we've got new beers out for all the OSs, and there's nothing exciting in any of them. So moving along, I think. No, I think that's just, it's it's not end of life, our current version of iOS and iPadOS and all the rest of it, but we're waiting for the new hotness at this stage. It'll just be security fixes. I can't see them adding anything new. I'm not surprised there's nothing in there of any particular interest, except maybe we get the odds hardware string for, for what the next devices may be, but that's rare. Maybe. I was just surprised they did a big update, you know, 15.6, normally what you're talking about you'd get in a minor point update and then one person did suggest actually maybe there's something coming out at wwdc and it will be ported into this bit beta the 15.6 chain before it's released and then into the the new 16 version when that comes out so who knows we shall see yep that does it for that the next piece of news is that following on from playstation getting apple music which we talked about if not last week than the week before audis are also now getting a dedicated apple music app which is as we said for the playstation it's great to see yeah, I think it makes sense. And I, I, I just put it in brackets here. I wonder whether Tesla will get the same treatment because why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't they? Like you've got a Spotify app. Why wouldn't they put Apple Music in as an app if you wanted to use it? I, I don't know. I don't know who, who's holding back on that one, whether it's Apple not wanting to do it or Tesla not wanting to let them do it. It's probably a little bit of both. I mean, uh, the, the sort of further question is why just Tesla? Where's the BMW one? Where's the Volkswagen one? Where's the Ford one? You know, why is it only Audi that are getting blessed? Particularly with the v, VW group having shared things for Skoda, for Seat, for all the other brands. Why is it just Audi? That's a fair point. I guess I'm not too fussed because I use CarPlay for everything. I wonder whether they should have pushed on some of this earlier, but I don't know. It's just one of those things. It'll be interesting to see where it goes, but it's, it's good. I, I wonder if they're going to do more with it. Yeah, I, why not unbundle it? In the same way that they've unbundled Apple TV Plus for lots of devices, it makes sense to unbundle Apple Music. So, yeah, good, good to see. And in this very similar vein, iTunes for Windows got gets an update this time. Once again, before Apple Music on uh, Mac does, which is quite obsessing. But it appears to be mostly security fixes from what I can see in the Windows update, but it said something. Why is it still iTunes? Why haven't they done Apple Music? 
It's a brand, I guess. They're gradually dropping the eyes off everything, I suppose. You know, we're only really left with iMac and uh, iPhone, uh, which we've talked about, and iPad, obviously, which we've talked about before. But with the death of the iPod... But if you're on Windows and you've heard all about Apple Music and you go to the store, you're not going to find Apple Music. I don't know, it just feels a bit odd. Yeah, I, I can't really argue with you. It's, if ever there was a time to rebrand, you'd think it would be around about now. But Even if know. this went file save as Apple Music, but I guess it's got the whole of, and do they need an Apple TV app, you know, and do what they did on the Mac and say, fork the apps in essence. But I don't know, it seems odd that iTunes is still going. And I don't know, they, if they're really serious about having a music service, surely they need it to work properly on Windows. I mean, the interesting, more interesting thing for me is it's in the Microsoft Store. You know, it's not something you go to Apple and download anymore necessarily. You can actually find it in the Microsoft Store. And Microsoft's more open, permissive, you know, way of dealing with these things obviously comes through a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, I still, I still don't get it. Why is it called iTunes? Anyway, should we move on? Let's move on. It's not that interesting, is it? So I thought this was an interesting story, and I've seen a, little, a couple of things on YouTube, and then there was this article on The Verge about Apple's self-repair program that is now live in the States and what you need to do. So this comes from, uh, there's a large movement in America called Right to Repair, and if you have a device, then uh, you should be able to repair the various components of it yourself, and lots of companies ascribe to this. Which is great, you know. If you if you have the skills to replace a battery or a screen or a connector or something like that, then why not? It's your device. You paid money for it. You should be able to do what you want. Modern Apple and modern Google and modern Samsung are kind of the antithesis of this, though, because they actually glue components in place. It's very difficult to take things apart and all the rest of it. But legally now they're compelled particularly Apple is one of sort of the easier targets for them, to provide parts. And we've talked about it in this podcast. They have a, a subsidiary a, a website where you can go and download, the, buy the parts and the manuals in order to do these repairs. But should you do so, Apple will also try and ship you the tools in order to carry out the repairs. And there's a fascinating article in The Verge about one of the, the, the bloggers there who wrote about this process of getting the tools to, in order to repair, the, I think it's the battery in this case, to replace the battery in their iPhone. And it's a very long article, the crux of which is that he gets shipped £79 worth of tools, including all sorts of clever heat guns and things like that to remove the screen from his iPhone to carry out the repairs. And it's quite an odyssey he goes on. You mean pounds as in weight, not pounds. as in monetary amount. Yeah. My, it is my, bonkers though, isn't it? The, amount of, the minimum amount of tools you need to do a repair. I kind of get it. And they obviously don't want you to break your phone, but... It does feel a little ridiculous. Well, there's a there's a bunch of stuff here. Is I mean, if you're going to do it, do it properly. Fine. So I can, I can kind of understand that. But they put a hold on your credit card for something like twelve hundred dollars in order to ship you the tools. You've got seven days to return the tools back to Apple because they're they, they send them to you. From the point he ordered them to the point he got them, two days passed by the time he got them. So now he's only got five days to carry out the repair on his phone and get them back to Apple before they take the, the hold off his credit card. Okay, I hadn't read that bit. I presume it's Apple. Apple set up the program. They're the ones that have to do the right to repair things, so it must all come from Apple. And the the cru- again, the crux of the article is they want this to be hard. They're obeying the letter of the law, but I would argue that they're not going with the spirit of the law. Because if you read through the article, the heat-resistant thing to remove the screen the first time didn't work very well. The ability to put the battery... Well, he got it all out fine. When he put the battery back in the phone, it didn't fit perfectly in the tool for replacing the battery in the phone. It was millimetres out, and he had to actually nudge it slightly himself. And then when he put it all back together and turned it on, nothing happened because the new battery arrived flat. So that was okay. He managed to fix it. But then it had the cheek to launch and say, this is not an Apple-certified battery. Wow. 
Everything you've said makes you want to go nowhere near any of this. And I, that, I think, is the point, is they don't want you going near any of this. They want to get you in an Apple store to charge for the repair. But more than that, they want to get you in an Apple store and maybe just buy a new one and get away from the hassle of having to deal with all this. Well, I can trade this in. I'll just get a new one. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I get they're doing it in the... They're not even in the right spirit. They're doing it to tick a box. Yeah. It, it's another case where you actually feel a little bit dirty reading about this stuff from Apple and you think that's really not in the spirit of what this is intended to be. Yeah, agreed. Shall we move on? I think so. That's, that's a bit of a negative story. So, uh, yeah. Uh, I thought this was an interesting one. I just wonder if it was worth three minutes thinking about it. That There's a mobile phone network in America. We used to have it in this country, actually, called T-Mobile. I think they've become an EE since, haven't they? I think T... I don't know what happened to T-Mobile. I think Orange and T-Mobile became EE. That's my my feeling about it. Anyway, for a while now, since 2016, in fact, iPhones have offered a thing called an eSIM. So if your phone arrived without a SIM, some networks would allow you to scan a QR code and it would have a virtual SIM, an electronic SIM inside of it, so you didn't need to do the SIM card insertion that we've all become so used to, sort of moving between phones and things like that. And the idea would be you'd be able to stop them as well and just sign up to another provider. It'd be really handy if you were traveling around the place. And they all support actually having two SIM cards, your actual SIM card and the eSIM card. And the thought would be, oh, you're going to Spain, you need a couple of weeks' worth of SIM access, scan a QR code, get a contract going for a couple of weeks. At the end of it, you give it up, and then your eSIM is ready to go again when you move on to another network, which is quite a nice idea, really, that ability to do it. But this last week in the States, T-Mobile has packed up, and everybody's eSIMs have just stopped working, leaving people without the ability to sort of, well, to send and receive calls so it's quite a major issue i would have thought if this is a, a technological solution that people have been f- pushing forward with yeah so quick follow-up t-mobile you're right did merge with orange to become ee which stands for everything everywhere and that was in 2010 and then everything everywhere launched their own network as e in 2012 and so largely the t-mobile the t-mobile brand has been defunct in the uk since about 2012 which is a lot longer than i'd remembered if i'm honest I thought it was more recently. And then, sorry, back to eSIMs. I really like the idea of the eSIM. I was like, this is great, but I've never done it because I'm like, well, I just want to buy a new phone. I can just pop out the, the SIM and just pop it in my new device and I'm off to the races. I like the idea of eSIMs and we wanted to explore it at work because at the moment, if we give out a work device, you can take your SIM out and put in something else. Whereas actually what we want to do is give you a work device that we own and we lock down. And actually you can't remove your phone number from it. And that way there's none of that of the mobile number becoming detached from its handset, if that makes sense. So I think the idea of eSIMs is great. And obviously we've all got them in our Apple Watch. If you've got a cellular Apple Watch, I've had no trouble with that, but I just, I'm quite embraced it on my phone. So that's where I'm at with my whole eSIM piece. And then this bug here seems awful. seems like a massive cock up, if I'm honest. Yeah, I agree. It's it's unforgivable to have a hardware product go wrong with a software update like that. You know, when it's potentially life saving, isn't it? Your mobile phone signal. It's the thing that should always work. It's the thing you rely on for nine 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 slash nine one one calls. So that that's just not good enough. That uh, it's the case that your your phone stops having cellular signal because of the eSIM. I wonder why it happened for just T-Mobile though, and didn't impact. Any other brands, well, networks? I don't know. Maybe T-Mobile have really pushed forward with their eSIM activation. I, d- I did do a little bit of digging in the UK, for because you don't really hear about it very much in the UK. And the, th- the network I'm with, which is 3, offered a trial for it in 2020 and then very quickly stopped. There's a thought they're going to relaunch the service again in 2022. but So no eSIMs from them. And all the other networks in the UK, Vodafone, O2, EE, do offer eSIM, but tends to be only on their longer-term plans. So it's not 
played out in the way that this is just a quick thing that I'm going to have for a couple of weeks and then it goes away again. They really wanted to be your sort of main main sim going forward. And that makes me uncomfortable when it comes to devices being locked to networks and carriers because certainly in the UK, some of our carriers have a less good reputation about you know the unlocked device and being able to do what you want. Yeah, I was just looking to actually EDU support it. They've got a bit of instruction about how you can do it. But like I said, I really like the idea. And I do wonder... Um, I do wonder if we, when are we going to get pushed to eSIMs only? Because they've been out for a long time now, and it seems bonkers to me that we're still trading on SIM cards that we had 25 years ago. Yeah, and it's a I lot. Know they're a bit smaller. It's a lot of waste, isn't it? Uh, when you think about you know all the little SIMs you can get in supermarkets and all the rest of it, where it'd be much easier just to get a fresh device out of a box, visit a website on your Wi-Fi, click on for your eSIM, and boom, and your phone would be set up and running. And it's interesting you touched on the Apple Watch there because my last Apple Watch had the cellular service but three never offered it on the Apple Watch. So I never used the, cell, the E7 inside of my Apple Watch. It was just dead weight. Um, I've got it and I use it every now and again. I don't use as much as I should. If I'm honest, I was trying to go through a spell of leave my phone behind because I've got the Pro Max. It's a bit big and I don't need it when I go out for my walks, but I guess I've just been a bit lazy. I need to probably persevere with it, make sure I've downloaded some content to my watch. The thing that used to annoy me though was Audible. So I listened to a book on my phone and my watch but the two would, would drift and then it's like, oh, I can't remember where I'm at. I just want to push play and resume. I, assuming that's got better over time. I mean, to be fair to Audible, they've done loads to the app on my phone, but I've not really gone back to it on the watch. So happy to, maybe I'll, I'll revisit. That'll be some follow-up. Yeah, that, that is interesting. I mean, the only reason I even thought about the ESIM and the watch at the time, and this is a bit of a diversion, was when I was doing more swimming in the sea. And, you know, if you get onto difficulty or you went to rescue somebody and they were in difficulty, you're not going to have your watch with you, your phone with you. But I always had my watch on me because it was charting my exercise at the time. So, you know, for a location in that scenario, it's absolutely perfect. But then if your network provider doesn't give you the ability to register it, it's kind of a pointless expense. You know? And as you say, if you're not really making use of it to the fullest, even when you have got that facility, it makes me question its value. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably wasting money on it, if I'm honest. Yep. More money on the watch. Anyway, I think that's it for news. Some quite interesting items in the news that I'd quite like to see followed up at some point, really. Like the eSIM thing is something we should check on, for sure. And the self-repair thing is just, it's bad. <laughs> it's all around bad. Yeah, I'm never going to fire up on that, because I'm not, I'm not going to go anywhere near doing that for real. <laughs> Good, let's move along. Media. Sonic, the prehistoric planet, then. Yeah, so I've seen Apple pushing this a little bit for me, so it's a new David Attenborough thing, shot very much in the way of his Blue Planet and, and Life on Earth and all those amazing series, using some groundbreaking CGI. I uh, haven't watched any of these yet. I'm not even sure they're on Apple uh, TV Plus yet, but Apple's been pushing it quite hard on the platform. Have you seen any adverts for it? No. And yeah. I have watched quite a bit of Apple TV Plus. So that's interesting in itself, isn't it, that you're not seeing these things come to light. But what I'm not sure about this particular story is I think in the UK at least it's on the BBC as well. Oh, is it? I did not know that. So I, I think so. I saw an article on the BBC, which I can't find again now, but I will look out for, where it seemed to suggest that the prehistoric planet would be available on iPlayer. Oh, okay. So, and just episode one is out at the moment. By the right. Way. But it's there, but no, I've not seen any adverts. So I just thought that was interesting, really, that this is the first time that I'm aware of that it's been available on more than one platform. Uh, yeah, I'd agree with that. Maybe it's a collaboration and that was a joint joint deal. Maybe. Just just interesting anyway. I mean, chances are I'll watch it on, on Apple TV Plus anyway because I get nice 4K content and not all the players support it, as we've talked about before. On iPlayer, I think my LG TV gives me a 4K player, but I'm not convinced my Apple TV Plus, my Apple TV gives me a 4K player for iPlayer. I'm not convinced. It might, but I, I, I've been offered Ultra HD on my LG, but never on my Apple TV. 
<laughs> but does it just work at 1080p? That's the question. I'm trying to think now. I'm, I'm going to say I think it is 4K, but I will check when I go back into the house. Right, so there's one for follow-up, is that next week we need to look at our various players and see if we can work out what we've got coming through on iPlayer, if we get served 4K content. Yep, sorry, I was just looking for a prehistoric planet on BBC and I can't find it. No, I'll, I'll see if I can put the link back in the show, show notes. I'll have another look. Anyway, the other thing I was going to just report back on is I have persisted with the Essex Serpent as well while I've been Apple TV+. And I think persist is, it might almost be above and beyond the Call of Duty. By the time the third episode has come along of a TV show, I'm normally knowing I really like it and I want to watch more or I hate it and I've, I've spent, I've wasted my life. And I'm really still not sure about this i i don't want to say i've not seen really any adverts for it i've not watched any of it i don't know you can watch what's the fourth one it i probably sound like you're waiting for it to drop well i'm not not as keen as i was when i was waiting for slow horses or foundation or something like that or you know whatever else is coming along the line but there there's just something i can't believe is this it you know I almost, i'm almost waiting for the other shoot to drop but it's taking a very long time to drop Gone for the slow burn okay well in slight follow-up as well in media i've been watching for all mankind and i'm on episode so i went back to the start after previously watching a couple of apps and now i'm up to episode seven and yeah i'm enjoying it it's a good story i quite like the alternative history and it's a super interesting piece of history anyway just how we managed to get rockets off the ground just it still mystifies me i guess that's why rocket science is hard but no it's really good it's really well shot uh some of it when they're on the moon and you're and they're going into the, the moon base they've got there does look a little bit CGI'd. That's that's my one bit of feedback, but the rest of it is stunning. Um, but no, generally enjoying it. And yeah, like I say, I'm, I'm quite interested in that. Anyway, I don't know why I didn't persevere with it first time around, but because it's not a hard watch, I just, I don't know, maybe, maybe I just got swept up in something else. So I'm trying to finish season one, and then I'm going to go for season two before hopefully three comes out, and hopefully I can watch season three at the same sort of parity as yourself. Yeah, I'm contemplating a rewatch of uh, For All Mankind because I did enjoy the first two so much and it actually even turned me around in an actor Joel Kinnaman I'm, I'm not a huge fan of I don't know if you've seen um, Altered Carbon or the other thing he uses one for is the Robocop remake and I thought he was a bit, seen he was a bit wooden and not really all that much cop I could see how he could be Robocop though uh, yeah yeah but was it Peter Weller I want to say Paul Weller but he's a singer was it Peter Weller I think it was the original Robocop no idea. I mean, you could think he was wooden, but he's actually a really good actor. <laughs> so same for Joel Kinnaman, for all mankind, Termirad, he's a really good actor. I guess the only bit I didn't realise in For All Mankind was how quickly we were going to move through time. Because one, one, two years later, I was like, oh, okay, that, that jumped a bit quick. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of 10 years per series, really, is what you get from the beginning to the end. Yeah, no, I get that now. And you were right, it is Peter Weller, by the way, for Robocop. There you go. There is some functioning brain left in me. Also, if you haven't seen the 80s version of Robocop, what are you doing? Get out there and watch it. If you're an age to do so, of course. It's a great film. I was just seeing what age it was. I thought it was like a 15 or an 18. I can't remember. It's got to be an 18. One one of the first VHSs I ever rented, I think, was Robocop. Move <laughs> on to gaming. Yeah, so it's going to be an odd topic, this, this this podcast, I think, gaming. We start with a rumour, actually, don't we? It should maybe have been in the rumour section, and I know we swithered about whether this should be a, a, a proper rumour or into the gaming thing. And this is that, uh, after all our chat last week about Electronic Arts, uh, they appear to be up for sale. Yeah, quite interesting, this one. EA, who famously bought up lots of studios and companies, and now may be up for sale. I did joke with you before we started recording was, I wonder if, if they've got another Blizzard lawsuit coming their way, 
know, they'd been had some inappropriate execs and they, they want to shore up some cash to to deal with any legal cases or maybe it's just genuinely they've got to their point and they now need to be swallowed by an even bigger company so interesting up for sale do you see the list of people that have been potential acquirees yeah so ea has spoken to several suitors including apple amazon and disney which is interesting but what's not, who's not on that list are sony or microsoft yeah very interesting which which really does surprise me i guess maybe sony or microsoft are worried they might look a bit like a monopoly at that stage or they're tighter-lipped about who they talk to. Yeah, and, and they've already got the deal sewn up and they're just trying to get a few extra sort of uh, dollars out of them. But, I mean, EA is a major publisher. We were, as we were talking about last time, there's all the, the FIFA stuff, there's, there's series like Battlefield, which I'm a huge fan of, Apex Legends, which I know you've played as well, and is a very, very polished Battle Royale game, SimCity from back in the day, Dragon Age, you know, all these kinds of things are EA properties. So it's a huge company that's massively influential, as much as we may not like them from time to time. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. But they do own also a lot of legacy stuff as well so if they wanted to bring back you know redo the the sims or command and conquer you know they own those brands to do it one game they are publishing that i like is the f1 game that's coming out with them this year i can't remember if they did last year's f1 game i'm assuming they did so they've got all the sports stuff they've got loads of strategy stuff in the in legacy stuff so they own a lot of ip copyright names brands so it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to be up for sale and weird that We've been told it's been up for sale in there and they're like pushing it around town as it were trying to find a buyer. Maybe maybe that's why it's leaked, because they're not getting a buyer and then so therefore they're leaking it to try and get it get it moved along, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Didn't they buy Codemasters as well? Sorry, I could I'm not sure if they did buy Codemasters. I don't remember. Yeah. I'll, I'll take your word for it. It's entirely possible they got Codemasters. I was thinking about all the historical stuff they own because I know you and I growing up, I'm a little bit older than you, but Bullfrog was a massively influential you know, UK publishing house for games like Populous and Dungeon Keeper, you know, iconic brands like that at Sim Hospital. Theme Hospital. Theme, theme Hospital, hospital. Yeah. Theme Park. Yeah. Dungeon Keeper was so good. Yeah. Dungeon Keeper 1. It was such a good take on a game, just digging out a dungeon. Oh, love that game. Yeah, and there there is a there is a modern take on the genre as well. Oh God, I can't even remember what it's called. It's about having henchmen and as like a Bond villain and sort of building out your lair. It'll come back to me, I'm sure. If not, that's follow up for Rod. But yeah, fantastic company, Bullfrog, and were bought by EA back in the day, and they didn't keep them very long. And I know Peter Molyneux, who was the direct the, the executive officer of of Bullfrog back in the day, very quickly moved along. And I think there's some sort of allegations or something floating around after him and his treatment of 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 people, but for a brief period of time, you know, in the end of the end of the eighties, beginning of the nineties, Bullfrog was one of the biggest publishing houses in the UK. What was the other one? Magic Carpet. Magic Carpet was a massive game. Never liked it, but it was huge at the time. EA is a subsidiary. Um, Codemasters is a subsidiary of EA, by the way. Well, there we go. I mean, what it means for Apple, they have never done this before. They've never bought a large game publishing. It doesn't mean they won't, but it doesn't seem to me that it's a natural fit. It's only since 2020 they've been a subsidiary. So that's quite interesting. I agree with you on the Apple buying them. They've never bought anything really that big. I think Beats was probably one of the biggest acquisitions. I think that's three billion at the time. I was listening to the After Steve book, and it, it's heavily featured in there. And that's follow up for next week. I've actually completed that book, so I'll, I'll do a bit of an update on it. So they paid three billion. It was probably one of their biggest acquisitions. They bought various chip manufacturers and things, which is how their chips are so good. But if they were to buy something like EA, I wonder whether they would even go near it because how would they integrate in? Would they just leave it as a separate company? And do they actually want games on 
PlayStation and Xboxes, or do they just want to drive their own game platform on their headsets potentially? Um, so I don't even know if they go near it, but then if they are trying to grow services revenue, you could put your games under services and, and off you go to the races. Well, games is a great way to go. And let's face it, I don't think Apple Arcade has set the world on fire, particularly. It's not a compelling reason to get that subscription. Do you know what I do with Apple Arcade, actually, on that side tangent? When my kids want something, I say, just go to the Apple Arcade tab and you can have anything in there. Just tap tap get on your device and I'll approve it on my device. And it's been quite good for my kids. One kid's playing pool and the other kid is playing a construction simulator. So they have bought up some properties and added them in. Or that strike deal has not bought them up, sorry. So Arcade is improving. And actually in my household, it's scratching a niche for my for my children, but not really for me. Yeah, my brief diversion about Apple Arcade is after one of our conversations, I went off and looked for a couple of the games on Apple TV to see if they were there because I thought there was meant to be this parity between the platforms. That was the dream on day one, but they changed the dream, I think, halfway through. Yeah, they weren't there. <laughs> the long and the short of it is they weren't there. Day one, they were going to be on every platform. And then when they rebooted it and they brought other games in, they just they removed a few boundaries, I think. Well, that'll do it for EA, but I guess it's watch this space, really. It would be quite interesting to see some properly first-party games come to the Mac or the iPhone or the iPad, but I think it's a bit of a stretch that Apple's a buyer for EA. I just don't think... I think it'd be a massive distraction from... Yeah, it would be. Okay, moving on. I thought I'd report back on, on something sort of tangentially related to gaming, and that's... I think some of our discussions uh, about virtualization and things like that got me on a bit of a, a kick to see if I could run any of the old games that I've got lying around on my new Apple Silicon Mac. So emulation is the word that you're looking for in this space, and it's can your computer or your console, Xboxes and things, do it as well? an old classic system. So I don't know how you feel, but we've talked before about our classic computers. For me, it was the Commodore 64. Could I play my old Commodore 64 games on various computers I've owned over the years? And could I now do that on an M1? I like the idea of emulation and I do get quite nostalgic from time to time. I'm currently been replaying Quake on my Nintendo Switch. So original Quake 1 that I'd have played probably some form of Pentium back in the day, I'm, I'm guessing. So I do like a bit of nostalgia up for some emulation. Have I got the want and desire to do it? Probably not. I'm just a bit lazy. I just don't want to have any faff. That's just how I am. But I'm a big supporter of it. And I think it's important to go back and try out some of the things from our history and also for others that may not have grown up with some of it to, to try out too. So looking at, at emulation, I think it's really good. I am surprised there's not more of it on like the iPad and stuff because what a great device it would be. It's far, it's far too powerful, which is great. So it, it's not like there'd be any issues there. But what a device to play some classic games on. Yeah, you say that, but it's surprisingly difficult to emulate some of the old chipsets and things like that, and doing it really, really well. Because of the analog nature, for example, of things like you think of classic arcade games and things like that, the way the screen, the orientation the screen was in and the way they responded to controls is entirely different. You had analog switching for things coming on and off in the screen. They were odd, odd orientations. They used strange control mechanisms. So despite the fact we've got much faster, much better hardware, the emulation isn't always one-to-one. -one. So it's a bit of a thought that not only are you potentially moving to something, actually, in many ways, ARM chips are closer to what came before, you know, the old RISC chips and things like that than, than modern Intel ones. But it's a bit of an ask, even for modern hardware, to emulate things like that. Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. It's complicated, and I don't know anywhere near enough about it. But I just think it would be a cool device for it because the, the iPad screen is probably similar size to what our TVs would have been back in the 90s if you had a big iPad. I'd, I'd, I don't know. I'm interested, but I, would I want to go and emulate my 486, my, which was my first computer 
and play June 2 on it. Yeah, I probably would actually just for a bit of retro. So I'm, I'll just fill in some blanks here, really. So I went off and looked at a couple of products just to see you know, if they ran on Apple Silicon and if they did, how well did they do? So this isn't an exhaustive list because A, you should back up a little bit. You have the emulator to emulate it, but then you need the game file to run on it. The legalities of owning and operating the game files to run on them are questionable. So for example, if you talk about something like a SNES or a NES or some of the early Sega games, the copyright around Sonic and Mario and all the various characters are still very heavily guarded by Nintendo or Sega. So you need to make sure you own what it is you're going to run on it. And typically that's in the form of a ROM file. A lot of the emulators on the Mac, you can plug in old disk drives, tape drives, or, or whatever you've got and do it. On the computer side of things, it's a little bit less clear. So there's a classification of software called abandonware, which is where it, the, the original producer, writer, author, publisher of it doesn't exist anymore and it's just fallen into sort of dis, disrepair. And you can freely and legally go and download a lot of that stuff from the internet and run it on one of these emulators. So that's just to sort of make a distinction between the software that you can get, the games to run on them, and the, the emulators that run them. Right, okay, now that makes sense. Because that was kind of my understanding of it. I was just thinking that's where you were talking. I guess the most, or the closest I've come to the emulation piece is probably two things. One, on my Nintendo Switch, I think Nintendo, to be fair, have done quite a good job of dealing with this. If you buy the online package, um, you get access to NES and SNES games. And if you buy, I'm going to call it the Online Plus package, I don't, I don't know what the official name is, the expansion, I think they call it, you can then get um, N64 games, some, not all. And then, um, and I think they've done quite a good job of that whole emulation piece. And, you know, because those games are tiny and they're starting start to offer it up. And then at work, I've got these micro mega drives, which is, whether it's emulation or not, but it's obviously a mega drive that is got modern USB-C on it and HDMI, but that also obviously does something similar with that way of playing retro games. But I don't know whether that one's emulation or not, but I'm assuming the Switch is emulation. And it's not just recompiled games because obviously Nintendo would have the source code, but it depends how much work they've put into it. I don't know. Is it more work to recompile the games or is it easier just to make the emulator so the games just work? Typically, they just make the emulator so the games will work. So if you think in the hardware space, there's been a little flush of old school N64s, uh, not N64s, but uh, Super Nintendos and NESs and Segas that you've been able to go to Curry's or Argos and buy a little box for about 80 quid that comes with you know 15 to 18 games. C64 was another one. And what they tend to be is Raspberry Pis repackaged with a decent emulator on them. Genuinely, if you look at the outputs for them, they've got USBs and the HDMI in the right slot, and that's what they do. They just install their version of the emulator, package it up very well, and make it a one-stop thing. So the hardware and the software are often these open-source emulators that um, I'll be talking about in a little more detail in a minute. Yeah, okay, it doesn't surprise me. It's a Raspberry Pi. That, that would make some sense. The, so Nintendo specifically for the, for the Switch, and they did a little bit of it with the Wii U as well, sort of being able to pull in old old games and things like that. It is just an emulator. And a bit of the Wii U, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Um, and I think Sony do something similar for some of their games, like when you could emulate PS2 games on your PS3, there was an emulator, and Microsoft do something similar for Xbox. I'll try and get this right. Xbox One games on the Xbox Series console as well, as they have an emulator that runs back on it. 
I'm on my PlayStation 5. Is it emulation when I play a PS4 game or is yeah. that native? I have no idea. No, that's emulating the PS4 game. Oh, okay. So but there you go. I've done more emulation than I Than, than you think you have, yeah. So I thought I'd mention a couple of things in this area. So if you are interested in this, and this is a native Apple silicon emulator, it's called Ares, link in the show notes. And with Ares, you can natively emulate the NES, the SNES, the N64, the Game Boy, the Sega Master System, the Sega Mega Drive, and the Neo Geo, and a bunch of other things as well, like the Game Gear, but they were sort of the big ones I, I plucked out. And I did find some abandonware ROMs, ROMs in this case, for, for all of these systems, and they all ran flawlessly on my uh, Apple Silicon laptop. Plugged in to my PS4 controller, it mapped natively to that as well. Shoulder buttons and everything just worked as you'd expect them to, and I was able to sit and play some games with sound in a window. I didn't go for full screen because it was quite a small window in some ways, but you know it does, it does upscale quite efficiently. Very impressive bit of software, I thought. Lots of things packaged into one. And as for your plug-and-play thing, it literally is a file open, the, the ROM, and it's up and running instantly. Wow, okay. That sounds really good, then. That's probably the experience I would be looking for. Of, can I just download this thing and point, point some games at it? Because I'd lose interest pretty quick. Because sometimes I've looked into this, and it's just too much, too much like hard work. So... On that, for your Mac, you have got an Apple Silicon Mac as well. There is an even easier product called OpenEMU, into which you drag the ROM file that you want. And it actually will go and find the cover art and everything of the game as well. And if you double-click it, it just launches. So it's even easier than Ares, but is not Apple Silicon native. You have to run Rosetta in order to get it to work. And now Rosetta works really well, but I don't want Rosetta on my Apple Silicon Mac if I can possibly help it. But it's a, for a very Mac-y experience of trying to emulate games, go out and seek OpenEMU. It's a really good bit of software. I'm just looking at the website now. It looks awesome. Yeah. If you've got any interest in running any old games from any of these consoles that I'm talking about, then it's and you're, you're still certainly on, on an Intel Mac uh, or you don't mind running Rosetta so much. It's a great solution. It works really, really well. It's very pretty. And as long as you can, you have legally the ROMs in order to do it, then it's it's a really first-class solution. That ah, looks fantastic. And then with, with the ROMs, are there places you can go and get abandonware and stuff? Yeah, if you if you search abandonware and uh, you're fairly careful and you know disclaimer disclaimer there are lots of this is a great way to start getting things you don't want on your on your computer, but just be careful. Look at what's going on with them. Make sure you're, you're taking the appropriate protection. The abandonware sites particularly are it's generally just open and and it's it's a community of people who don't want this software to be gotten. In the same way we're talking about the app store, you know, removing games, removing products that are sort of five, six years old because they hadn't been touched by a developer. The abandonware community, particularly for the older computers, Spectrum, C64, Amiga, uh, computers like that, there's lots of it about from games we remember back in the day that are freely available to download and get on and use. Sorry, I'm looking at OpenEMU. It looks awesome. It's great. So in the same vein, I wanted to give a little shout to a program called Vice, V-I-C-E, which is the versatile Commodore, Commodore emulator. So I found some abandonware Bubble Bobble on a Commodore 64 website. I fired up your, your grid in, Chris, I can see. Do you remember is Bubble Bobble? Is that where Bobble? you shoot the bubbles? Yeah, yeah. yeah you, okay. two, two little jumpy dinosaurs in a variety of levels, and you catch the, bit, the, catch the beasties in your bubble, and then you burst the bubble with your horny little head on your dinosaur. I have a lot of affection for that game. And the, the soundtrack, particularly in the Commodore 64, was amazing. Anyway, I downloaded Vice, the, the silicon build of it, I dragged Bubble Bubble onto it, up it went, and immediately again when my PlayStation 4 gamepad plugged into it, I had I was I was in control and I could get on and do it. That is cool. That, like I said, that is the kind of thing I'm interested in. Um, I never owned Bubble Bubble, but I have played it. 
yeah, it was well known in the arcade, and I think the, the Commodore 64 was probably the best sort of incarnation of it. But there are so many classic C64 games that I remember from my, let's call it childhood, early teens maybe. It, it's just quite nice to be able to fire them up and, and have a go again. And this gives you that quick hit. And I won't go into the, are old games as good as modern ones and can they hook you for as long? because the nostalgia element can't be overlooked, really. There is a certain buzz to remembering something you played from, you know, whenever you played it on whatever you did it on. And being able to do that again, it's quite a nice experience. I definitely agree with that. Yeah, I definitely agree with the nostalgia, but I'm a big fan of it, actually. So one more thought for Max, and then I'm going to throw something out to you iPad owners out there as well. So the other one that, if you do remember, like your classic Quake, or more likely classic Doom from back in the day, because Doom preceded Quake, although there was something else before it. Uh, Wolfenstein? Yeah, I think Wolfenstein was first, and then Doom, and then Quake. I think that was the way that it went. Uh, I can remember now the first time I played Wolfenstein on my beige 486 with a nice 14-inch CRT. I just, it just blew my mind. It was the first, I think it was one of the first games, and this is when you could get a shareware version, which would give you a few levels for free, and then you could pay, obviously, to unlock it, or, or you have to go and buy the full version. Love that game. I've, I, I've got. I've played it recently. I remember doing some of the levels. And Doom, actually, all the Dooms are available on the Nintendo Switch with the, you know, done by ID, the developer. So, and they work really well. Same as Quake. So good. Yeah, that's that's good. But you could just download the abandonware versions of them or the shareware versions of them and run them in a thing called DOSBox-X, DOSBox-X on your Mac. Or there's a, another program called Boxer, which does the same thing as the OpenEMU thing I was talking about a little bit before, where you get all the al- album art and everything as well. It's, it hasn't been updated in a little while. It's not Apple Silicon native, but DOSBox-X is. And you can run all your old DOS things. You can even, if you feel like it, install Windows 95 or Windows 311 via DOSBox uh, onto your Mac if that if you had any sort of particular desire to do so. I wouldn't mind to have a go on Windows because it's like 3.1 because it's been so long, but I, I probably wouldn't know what to do. So you, you point, you click, you know, they'd copy the Mac, remember? I'm vaguely aware. And, and the Mac copied Xerox, Spark, we know. Okay, so that was it for sort of Mac emulation. So I had a lovely little time, about 90 minutes or so, sort of... Uh, going into my past and downloading some games and having some ones I already had and trying them out on on these various uh, emulators and things. And I will say, the Apple Silicon devices are a perfect environment to do this on if you just want five minutes of tinkering with something. Good batteries, they last a long time, they don't get hot when you run these games, they're not very stressful for for a modern computer processor particularly, although some of them can be, see earlier discussion. Yeah, well worth a look, I think. As long as you're fairly careful about the websites you're looking for, for some of the abandonware and some of the software, it's, it's time well spent, and some of them are more attractive than others. If you like to want to be a bit geeky, you can do it. Uh, you can get a lot more in-depth about what goes on there. If you're really desperate to go and hook up your old 1541 uh, disk drive from your Commodore 64, there is a way to do that too. But uh, I, I think that might be a step too far. No, fair enough. I, I'm interested. You, you, you've whet my appetite. just whether I've got the time and the, and the follow-up inclination, I guess. Great. And then, just for, just for the iPad owners out there, there is a project called Alt Store and the link will be in the show notes as well, which will let you do some of this on an iPad. So you effectively install a server on your Mac or your PC, it's not a Mac exclusive thing, and then you can buy within Alt Store things such as GameCube emulators or Wii emulators, or in fact an Amiga emulator, and UTM, which is, if you remember a few weeks back when I was talking about virtualization, is the virtualization machine that works well in Apple Silicon at the moment. So you could actually install UTM from the alt store. It's all legal. It's kind of side loading, but you know, the, 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 there is a loophole within the app store that allows this to happen. 
because you're notarizing it from your machine, not from the App Store. You don't need to be a developer or anything to do it. That you can you can just visit Alt Store and do it. And and you can install Linux on your iPad if you really wanted to. A modern ARM version of Linux would run very well, particularly on your iPad, your M1 iPad, or these game emulators, as I say. Yeah, I have heard about Alt Store. I've kind of been a little interested in it because. I think I love my iPad. I just, because I need to go and install a companion app, I just have never got around to it. I don't think it's a lot of hassle. I think maybe for science, one of us should do it really, just to to see what the process is like. And you're the iPad guy, so I'm looking at you. Um, Yeah, I got that. So I just, I wonder what it's like. I mean, even if you just did get a Linux ROM and put it on there to try it, that that might be fairly interesting. Or, you know, if you, you, and I'm sure you do have some old Wii games that you you own, you could connect something up to to get a disc spinning, you know, then we still have a Nintendo Wii in the loft. There you go. So you actually own the games as well. So you're in a perfect position to try and do something. Okay, keep nudging me. I'll see if I can have a go at this one. So that's that's it for my little tour through emulation. But I think it is a fascinating thing. And if you've been in this game or played with computers, the chances are you had some sort of console or you had some sort of early computer back in the day, even if that was a PS2 or PS3, because there's emulators for them now too. What we really need is a Sega Master System with a, one of those light guns and a 14-inch CRT screen and a bit of Duck Hunt. <laughs> Wasn't the Duck Hunt SNES or NES even? No, I had a Master System 1, and it came with two games built in, and one was Duck Hunt. What was the Nintendo equivalent? Duck Hunt is a 1984 light game shooter published by Nintendo for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Hang on, hang on, hang on. If I'm wrong, I'm happy to be wrong. And I never realized they did a... Mar- I knew they did a System 2 for the Master System, but I didn't realize they did a System 3. Just just as an aside, if you have got an old one lying around somewhere with a light gun, it won't work with an LCD panel. You have to have a CRTV for the light gun to work. So it included the games Hang On and Safari Hunt. My apologies, it wasn't Duck Hunt, but you did shoot ducks. <laughs> there you Safari go. Safari Hunt. So good. Loved it. There you go. I think I had a light gun with my Sega Saturn and it was a Virtua Cop. That's the last light gun, modern light gun game I remember. Been over 30 modern. Years old. 1995, I want to say. Okay, maybe not quite 30 years old. <laughs> Good. Okay. And just going to finish off uh, with a PC game that I played that I just thought was amazing just for the scale of what's on the screen. It's called Age of Darkness Final Stand. You can get it on the Steam Store, it's in early access. And if you watched Game of Thrones or any of those things where there's literally millions of beasties at the door trying to get through, this is a simulator for that. There are billions of things trying to get onto the map to kill you. It's very, very hard. The first line of the tutorial is, you will fail this game. And even on easy, it's quite hard going. But if you can imagine, you know, a Dune 2 Command and Conquer type resource game where you've got to very quickly skill up and keep them the beasties from the door, it's that. It's been very entertaining for me. £15 well spent on Steam and I hope it comes to my to my Steam Deck when it's released. It's hard. Uh, interestingly, published by Team 17 who did Worms and various other games. So uh, I'm going to say. It is hard, but the Team 17 thing is what pushed me over the edge and made me buy it. Oh, fair enough. They've, they've got some cachet. They do. Good. I think that was a very long diversion into gaming. So shall we very quickly whip on to the, the main show and maybe do a short main show? Yep, let's go for it. So you wanted to talk about uh, Apple shipping delays again? Certainly. So I said at the top of the show that listener Ashley had a couple of questions, and I just thought this was an interesting one. He ordered his Mac back in March, I think, uh, MacBook Pro, and he's still waiting for it. And he just wondered if we knew any more than than what was out there about why Apple might be taking so long to ship products. 
It's a good question. I guess I've been quite lucky. I ordered my studio display and I managed to get it on day of release. I did go and pick it up from a store. But no, I, I don't know a huge amount about it. I know at work, we've been struggling with certain builds of Dow laptops, but I haven't looked on the Apple store for a while. I guess I guess everything's supply constraint. You know? I mean, you've seen it from cars to everything. I, I noticed in the show notes, you've just looked at Macs and not anything that begins with an I. Well, they don't matter particularly. Also, I don't I think that. I don't think there is resource constraint. I think you can get iPads without too much of a problem. There's enough of backlog or, or whatever it is. But just I went off to sort of look for news stories and things about it. And the most recent thing I could find, which is there's a link in the show notes, is Mark Gurman found one in April uh, about continuing shipping delays, a due to the, the supply chain shortage, but more than that, there was COVID outbreaks within China at the time that caused even more shortages within the supply chain. So I think when it comes to Mac specifically, it's just the worst of all worlds. They do try and keep stock low and make them as they go along, but there is huge demand for the new chips. There is huge demand for the new displays. And then you've got the confounding factors of all the products more or less, particularly the Macs being assembled in China. The dependencies are within China for them. I think it's just unfortunately the nature of the beast in Apple supply chain that they're constrained. Yeah, maybe this is where the just-in-time stock management is biting them a little. I wonder if it's down to any one component. Are they struggling to make screens? Are they struggling to make their chips? Is it the memory? Is it the SSDs? You know, I, wonder, I, just, I don't know. I just generally wonder um, about that. Sorry, whilst we were talking, I was just looking at some iPads, actually. So you can get the iPad out. If you order one today, the new one, you can get it on the 16th to 23rd of June. And the iPad Pro, the 9th of June to the 16th of June. So... Quite delayed for Apple, to be fair, because normally it's next day. Yeah, that, I mean, that is it. And I, I did the same as you did. I went to the Apple store and I tried to uh, put a couple in my basket and do some configurations. And so I'll report back on that. And I, um, to your point about is it screens or is it SSDs or what is it? I think as far as Macs are concerned, particularly the laptops, it's, it's the screens. Further down the line, it's the chips, I would suggest. You know, the ultras are probably quite hard to make in uh, scale. And they weren't sure what the demand would be for the studio. So there is that within it. But when specifically you look at the 16-inch MacBook Pro, at the highest specification I could put into it, the soonest chipping was the 15th of July. And I doubt they'd hit the 15th of July. It gave a range from the 15th to the 29th of July. So I suspect ordering direct from Apple, not going through any sort of suppliers or academia or any of the other sort of various things that business might order through, which also adds a delay to the supply chain because they're a second-party customer compared to you ordering it straight off the Apple store. That... You know, you're, you're talking a couple of months to delay still, and that hasn't got any easier as people want to get these chips and these screens in their hands. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out as as they obviously launch a load of new products throughout the year. I just looked at iPhones while we were talking. So the iPhone 13, not the mini, you can have on Wednesday. And the same with the iPhone Pro you can have on Wednesday. So that was quite interesting. Actually, iPhones seem fine, but then again, are they if they can only build so many things, are they diverting it majority into iPhone-shaped things rather than iPads and Macs. Well, you're probably right. When we looked at the stock earnings a couple of weeks back, iPhone was 52% of the company, right? So I think you're going to sort of prioritize that above all else because more consumers want an iPhone than want a 16-inch, 32-gig, one-terabyte storage M1 Max. But just to finish off my thoughts on that, the 14-inch in all specs were the same, 15th, 29th July. What I did find quite interesting was if you're willing to drop down to just the M1, so in the 13-inch MacBook Pro, you can have one of them on the 25th of May. So not very far away from today, really. You can get yourself one of them. So obviously that base spec machine with the old screen and the old chassis 
is there's more of them lying around. They're able to do more with it. I thought this yeah, was... I'd quite... imagine dried up, hasn't it? Yeah, it's still a bloody good computer, though. So, you know, but I, I do get if there's something newer and sexier out there, then people are going to want it. I thought this was quite interesting. If you go for an iMac, you can have one really quickly. You can have one in, in, in May, almost... I think by Wednesday was the earliest one I saw, considering today's Monday. But if you put a Visa mount bracket on one, you can't have one until the 18th of July. So that's interesting. Is this where they're struggling? And does this come into the resource? Because they have had issues, you know, in the factories in China with, with um, resource and people having COVID and what have you. So maybe this is what they're struggling with. We've got the stuff that's boxed and built and out the door and in standard configs. But actually anything bespoke, that's where we're seeing the delays perhaps. Yeah, but the Visa mount is interesting. So you think the iMac is M1, which we've just said is fine for, for the 13-inch MacBook Pro. All you're doing is not having a stand on it and giving you the ability to screw something in the back of it. So it's just the back of the display that's different, presumably, to allow for that Visa mount. Massive change in shipping. I do find that. I think Apple have pushed themselves into a mounting corner, a bit like a thermal corner, where they've just made the whole Visa mount thing more complicated than it needs to be. Why, why have they not just got some form of fancy clip on the back of their screens where I can just take the stand off and put and you know clip in a vest amount or a, a different you know a high adjust palm? If I want to get what I don't get is why can't I buy it now and you just ship it to me and I just take the stand off? Yeah, I mean, you, you charge me for it, fine, but I don't get why I've got to take it into store. It's, it seems a very poor design, yeah, it's punitive. It's just, just to have a slightly fancier stand, because I think the iMac stand is more or less what you get on the XDR and what you now get in the Mac Studio without the height adjustment necessarily. So I think, you know, it's it's just a bit over-engineered and it's punitive, again. <laughs> I would say it's under-engineered because you can't take it off. Yeah. Surely a real test would be make this amazing stand, but just give me a little button so I can just pull it out and, and swap it. I, yeah. I don't know. Charges another 300 quid. We'll, we'll, we'll eat it up. Just to finish off my thought here, the Mac Mini, if you order a box down the Mac Mini in any spec, you can have that again today's Monday. You can have one by Thursday. Uh, as soon as you configure anything, that changes to the 10th to 14th of June. So there's still, and that's still just bog standard M1 again. The Mac Studio, no, even the base model, you can't have until the 1st of June at the earliest. So that's just with the Mac's chip in, the same one that's in the, the MacBook Pros we were talking about a little bit ago. But if you go Ultra, and spec it up a little bit, then you're into July. 15th of July at the absolute earliest. And as you've already said, iPads are also constrained in this supply chain as well. So it's almost right across the board there's delays to Apple products. So it's not as ju not just you, listener, actually. It's interesting though, isn't it? Like you say, it's, it doesn't seem any real logic to what's delayed and why it's delayed. But as you were talking, I thought I'd just go and look on the refurb store in the UK, which I've bought loads of Macs on over the years. And actually, you go MacBook Pro, they've only got some M1s with the touch bar, so which isn't many. They normally have have a few on. There's no Airs whatsoever. And then you go Mac Mini, there's just some Intel Mac Minis, ranging everything from a grand to two and a half grand. I mean, there can't be many buying them. And you go iMac, there's a load of Intel iMacs, and then a couple of new M1 ones, which is interesting. And then you, you could go Mac Pro, and there's a whole bunch of five grand towers to 10 grand but they're all in tower chips so can't be many people buying them so it's really interesting the it looks like the refurb store has been drained as well maybe that's where people want things a bit quicker so either there's some new products coming out or there's a real problem it's never been like this i would suggest no i would agree with you and actually i realized i skipped over the macbook air which we all know is the biggest selling laptop that apple make and the base specs for it are 11th july on both pre-order pre ones Wow, and that's, that's, that's really weird, isn't it? Yeah, that really surprises me. I thought I, I'd see them Wednesday, Thursday this week. 
Especially if you just bought off the shelf. Yeah, off the shelf, no configuration. That's I, I am surprised by that. So that says to me that there's probably new MacBook Airs coming. <laughs> or are they really that supply constrained? I mean, the M2 MacBook Air is, has been rumored for a while now, so I think we've got to be in the ballpark for that. It has, but surely they've got to finish the Mac Pro first. I, yeah, it's not like Apple to not sell you a thing, even if there is one coming tomorrow, let's face it. Yeah, there is that. They do take the store down now for a few hours. I, I don't know. So I think then to summarize, I think some of it's going to be COVID issues. And then they've probably obviously got supply constraint issues. You could see it, can't you? With everything going on in the world at the moment, we're still not back up and running, are we? Post-COVID, post, well, during a war. So um, it is interesting. And some of our American podcasts I listen to, I think they were they were talking more that COVID is still much more of an issue than what we're seeing over in the UK. So maybe other countries are suffering more than we're aware. A lot of our news is taken up with Ukraine at the moment for the right reasons. And actually COVID in the UK feels largely like a relatively non-ish event. I mean, people are still being cautious, but masks have literally been forgotten about. And the world is just back largely to normal. And people still cross the road in the street and things and give a bit of wide berth, but you're not really seeing it. So we are probably living in a little bit of a bubble in the UK where we're kind of in a post-COVID world, whereas maybe other countries aren't quite there yet. Hmm. No, we've got monkeypox instead in the UK now, but uh, it's 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 I'm endemic. To ignore that. <laughs> it's endemic. Well, sorry if we haven't answered the question, but I mean, I think it's not just you, if that's any comfort. Even going down to an Apple store is not going to get you any quicker, and you're going to get one sooner than the rest of us if you've got it on order. So, What, what device did Ashley buy? He bought a MacBook Pro, 16-inch MacBook Pro. Yeah, that's a bit killer, isn't it? It's worth waiting for, I'd suggest. If you haven't had an Apple Silicon device before, you're going to love it. Even as the iPad guy, even I would, would be quite happy with one of them. Yeah, I know you and I have gone back and forth over the years about go for the 12-inch, go for the 17-inch as well at the time. You know, we've, we've, we've swithered about. I've had a few 17-inch PowerBook G4s. I think I had a 17-inch Intel when, you, when it first came out with the black uh, bezels. Oh, it was a stunning piece of kit. And it was the unibody. If you're using it all day, every day, you can't be a bit of screen real estate. Yeah, I, I, I agree. If it's something portable you want, go for a, a MacBook Air. But if you want a desktop replacement, you can't, there's no excuse for screen inches, is there? I completely agree. I think it'll be awesome. So, um, yeah, it'll be worth the wait, definitely. It'll be worth the wait. So, like a good place to finish to me. I think we should. We've been, we've been on a wee while, haven't we? So thanks for the questions tonight. And if anybody else has got any questions, do drop us an email at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com. Love to have your feedback, any questions or topics you want us to cover. And then uh, if you want to reach out on Twitter, we are at WFS underscore podcast. Love to hear from you. Cheers, Rod. Cheers, Chris. See you next week. See you next week. Bye-bye.